Hello, and welcome back to The Reeducation. I'm Eli Lake, and today's show is about the wilderness of mirrors, that web of half-truths, lies, and falsehood that spies and counter-spies spin to deceive their adversaries. This episode examines this in the context of Russian and Soviet disinformation and psychological warfare. My guest is the great Peter Savodnik, a senior writer and editor for Barry Weiss's Common Sense Substack and the author of the 2013 book, Interloper, about Lee Harvey Oswald's sojourn to the Soviet Union. A Soviet military publication claims the virus that causes AIDS leaked from a U.S. Army laboratory conducting experiments in biological warfare. You just heard from Dan Rather, the former anchor of CBS News, who is today a resistance Twitter personality. Back in 1987, when this report was filed, Dan Rather did not know it, but he was being played by the commies. The research paper that he references here was pure bullshit. It was commissioned by the East German Stasi and authored by an East German medical researcher named Jacob Siegel. It claimed that the AIDS virus was created by a secret U.S. bioweapons lab. Now, that paper was first distributed to diplomats from the non-aligned movement in 1986 and then recycled in Soviet propaganda organs. The groundwork, however, had been laid in 1983 by the Soviet KGB, who sent an anonymous letter to an Indian newspaper, ironically called The Patriot. And that letter claimed to be from a prominent American scientist. Slowly at first, the story began to spread. Eventually, it was picked up in many Western newspapers, including the Daily Mirror. And then Dan Rather slipped it into his nightly newscast. To this day, some celebrities, like Kanye West in this particular song, still say that AIDS was initially developed by the U.S. government. Most listeners will probably be familiar with the concept here of Russian disinformation from the 2016 election. That was when a troll farm in St. Petersburg with an Orwellian name, the Internet Research Agency, began an operation that aimed to drive our country nuts. The IRA purchased fake ads, created phony accounts, and pushed out nonsense aimed at sowing confusion and riling up the fringes. There was a Twitter account that purported to be the Tennessee Republican Party, there were postings for fake rallies at the same location for pro- and anti-immigration groups. A fake Russian persona, known as Blacktivist, spread conspiracy theories about the U.S. government. Another fake ad featured Jesus and Satan arm-wrestling and claimed that Satan had endorsed Hillary Clinton. Now, as listeners to this podcast know, I am very critical of how the media and the FBI and the Democratic Party handled Russiagate, the conspiracy theory that Donald Trump and his campaign conspired with Russia's efforts to meddle in the 2016 election. That said, just because Trump was framed doesn't mean Russia wasn't guilty. Because it is true, the Kremlin really did try to influence the 2016 election. I think it's debatable how effective it was, but they definitely tried. And as they tried, or when they tried, I should say, they were playing to form. In 2016, it was a social media-charged reprise of Soviet operations during the Cold War. Now, as a military tactic, spreading disinformation is as old as warfare. 
the Greeks wheeled a gigantic wooden horse to the gates of Troy, presenting it as a gift to the city. Only inside were legions of hoplites ready to pounce. The Mongol hordes would feign retreat to lure the enemy into an ambush. Now, the Soviets pursued information more in a far more strategic and comprehensive way. They sought to unravel societies, not just to deceive an enemy on the battlefield, because for the evil empire, everything from media, culture, domestic politics, and foreign countries, it was all one battlefield. And the Soviets were determined for a long time to win on that battlefield. Here is James Jesus Angleton, the first counterintelligence chief for the CIA, sort of a legendary figure in the history of American intelligence. And here he is explaining Soviet disinformation warfare in a 1976 interview on British television. This is two years after he retired from the CIA. And it presents to the West by the various themes that it promulgates, what I call a wilderness of mirrors. They can have you believe whatever they desire you to believe. And if you have, as they do, control over both, not both, but all forms of communication with the West, whether it be the media, diplomats, tourists, students, culture, all playing the same theme. That becomes a very convincing conglomerate of information to a man who's attempting to do an overall evaluation. That phrase, the wilderness of mirrors, is just wonderful. I love it. It comes from T.S. Eliot's Gerontium. It's a poem about a very old man looking at Europe after the First World War, unable to make sense of the ravaged deathscape before him. How should I use them for your closer contact? These, with a thousand small deliberations, protract the profit of their chilled delirium, excite the membrane when the sense has cooled, with pungent sauces multiply variety in a wilderness of mirrors. For Angleton, who was a great admirer and, I think, friend of T.S. Eliot. The Wilderness of Mirrors was a way to explain the uncertainty, the disorientation of facing an adversary like the Soviet Union and trying to understand what the Soviets were up to. In this context, Angleton was referring to the psychological effects, in some ways, of this Soviet information war tactics, or war strategy, I should say. It was a deliberate effort to foment mass confusion. It's an attempt in some ways to exhaust the target society, to cause what might be called epistemological despair, the realization that there is no truth and no point in ever trying to find it. For more on this concept, I really recommend Peter Pomerantsev's great book, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, where he really talks about the history of this idea and how it applies in modern Russia today. Now, Angleton knew of what he spoke because he was not just an observer of Soviet psychological warfare or information warfare, he was also a victim. Angleton's mentor in the espionage business was perhaps the greatest double agent in modern history. His name was Kim Philby, and he was a British spy who was recruited by the Soviets while he was a student at Cambridge, and he actually rose very high inside the MI6. When Angleton and Philby were stationed in Italy during and after World War II, they became very close friends, and Philby would end up being 
Angleton's mentor in the intelligence business. And the two of them would get even closer in Washington, D.C., when Philby was the station chief for the MI6 at the British Embassy. And in the early 1950s, Kim Philby came under suspicion for tipping off two other Soviet spies who defected to the USSR in 1951 before they were caught. And at the time, James Jesus Angleton vouched for his old friend Kim Philby. And Philby was briefly exonerated. But eventually, all of his betrayal caught up with him. and He was unmasked in 1963 while he was in Lebanon, actually writing for The Economist. He ended up hightailing it back to Moscow, where he spent the rest of his days. Now, after Kim Philby's great betrayal, Angleton's suspicious nature curdled into paranoia. He became convinced that the Soviets had moles everywhere, throughout the entire West. Of course, it was in the CIA as well. But, you know, James Jesus Angleton suspected Willy Brandt, the Chancellor of Germany, for being a commie. He thought that there were secretaries of states who might be agents. It was kind of nuts, especially towards the end. And in this process, he ruined the careers of a lot of good, innocent CIA officers. He was convinced that they must be these moles. I should say, James Jesus Angleton's legacy is still debated to this day. And there are positive elements of what he was able to accomplish as well. So I don't want to just paint this negative picture. But I wanted to bring him up because I think it demonstrates how ruthless and cunning the Soviets were during the Cold War, especially in the spy versus spy world. And if you think about it, if the Cold War was decided only on the quality and deviousness of the CIA versus the KGB, well, I think we did say that the Soviets would have won the Cold War, and we would have statues of Lenin and Marx in our cities and parks today, and we may be speaking Russian. So it's worth asking, why didn't the Soviets win the Cold War? And there are many, many reasons. I don't want to go into too much detail here. But, you know, an obvious one is that the West had far more robust economies than the sclerotic, centrally planned, and corrupt Soviet economy. The combination of wealth and innovation gave America an enormous technical edge, especially through the sort of later years of the Cold War, and particularly when it came to computer technology. So while the Soviets were much better at recruiting spies, influencing foreign governments, sowing terror, etc., America was very good at sort of building machines that were able to just sort of hoover up Soviet phone conversations or intercept and decode their ciphers. But I'd say an even bigger reason as to why the Soviet Union lost the Cold War was because it was a horrible, terrible place to live. Even for the elites, it was a bad place to live. Because at any moment, they could be unpersoned and sent to a gulag. If you were a great artist, a scientist, or a thinker, I mean, you would much rather live in America or the United Kingdom or France than, you know, some flat in Moscow or Minsk. And add to this the terrible brutality that was unleashed on so many Russians, you know, at various stages of the Soviet history, such as the Great Terror under Joseph Stalin in the late 1930s. Now, it was a double-edged sword because the terror and fear that was generated by the Soviet regime did ensure a kind of loyalty when it came to its KGB officers and its military. The consequences of betraying the Soviet Union was a death sentence no matter where you ended up. I mean, just look at the fact that the Soviets pursued 
Leon Trotsky, who fell out for ideological reasons with the revolution, to Mexico City, of all places, and stabbed him in the middle of the night. But if you were, say, I don't know, Philip Agee, he was a CIA officer who would go on in the 1970s to publish the names and addresses of his fellow officers at the CIA, and later ended up his life in Cuba, well, you could survive your betrayal. Or, for that matter, just look at Kim Philby. He died of natural causes in a Moscow apartment in 1987, as opposed to the poison tip of an umbrella or an irradiated tea, which is what would have happened if Kim Philby had betrayed the country that he spied for. The thing is, the state terror of the Soviet Union, it also created dissidents. These are people who quietly worked against the evil empire, and we know many of their names. There is Sakharov, there is Sharansky, there is Solzhenitsyn. And we read their books, and we really revere them correctly as heroes of this period. But there was one who doesn't get as much attention. This is a mild-mannered librarian who had the interesting job of preserving the KGB's secret archives. His name was Vasily Mitrokin. He was a loner with unique access to the Soviets' top secrets and a secret of his own. He wrote down on pieces of paper, brought him out of KGB headquarters in his sock. Over the course of 12 years, he squirreled away information that the United States could only dream about. He diligently and studiously copied KGB files. What a swell kick in the ass. Now this is a remarkable story. In 1992, in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union, Matrokin made his way to Riga, Latvia, dressed as a vagrant, with suitcases that had samples of handwritten copies of the KGB's most guarded secrets stuffed at the very, very bottom. He made sure to sort of disguise them with very, very smelly spiced sausages on top. And these archives were the result of a painstaking process over many years where Matrokin, as the librarian, who'd been quietly disgusted with not just the Soviet Union, but particularly the KGB, had handwritten copies and then sort of stuffed them in his socks and snuck them out of the KGB archive and library and then buried them under his house for like a dozen years. It's kind of, it's a remarkable thing. So in Riga... Matrokin first goes to the U.S. Embassy, and they think that his offer is too good to be true. Yet another point in favor of the argument that the CIA at the end of the day was not as effective as the KGB. So they turned away this guy who had the family jewels. After that, he tried the British Embassy. Then he turned up at the Embassy of Her Britannic Majesty, and uh, he asked to speak to somebody in authority. I hadn't realized that um, uh, uh, diplomats could be female as well as male, but anyway, a young female diplomat um, turned up. And he told her his deeply improbable story that at the bottom of this bag there were samples of top-secret material from the, the KGB. Now, at that point, she could simply have regarded him as yet a, another bogus asylum seeker um, manufacturing some way to, uh, to get a visa, but she didn't. She asked him a question um, which is, makes me proud to be British. It's a question which only a British diplomat could ask. It changed his life, and in a smaller way, it changed mine. And the question was, would you like a cup of tea? <laughs> Man speaking there is Christopher Andrews, probably the greatest historian of Western intelligence alive right now. He ended up co-authoring with Matrokin 
a 2001 history of the KGB that were based on his archives that were smuggled out of Russia. It's called The Sword and the Shield. And it's just a classic. I highly recommend it as a reference guide because it is documented history of one of the most secretive organizations of the 20th century. I cannot recommend that book more highly. And from Matrokin, we learned a lot. We learned about the plot to blame the U.S. military labs for inventing the AIDS virus, as we talked about in the beginning of this monologue. We learned about Soviet efforts to discredit Martin Luther King when he was alive by spreading stories about his deep cooperation with the Lyndon Johnson administration. And then after he was assassinated, the Soviets turned on a dime and spread the lie that he was killed by the U.S. government. Matrokin revealed Soviet operations to bug Henry Kissinger's private phone. He provided rosters of deep cover agents known as illegals. Think of that show, The Americans, that were embedded throughout the West. It really was the crown jewels of Soviet intelligence. And now, because of his bravery, and I should say his note-taking, it is out there for all of us to see. So I think these two stories of Angleton and Matrokin reveal an irony about intelligence and, for that matter, sort of this disinformation war. Because it's true that in liberal states, fear-based societies have an advantage when it comes to skullduggery. It's more perilous to defect or blow the whistle in a totalitarian state like the Soviet Union than it is in a place like America. Powerful ideology like Marxism can drive reasonable men and women to do great cruelty to advance what they see as a greater cause. That said, the open societies like our republic are also a magnet for dissidents like Matrokin. And despite the best efforts of the Soviets and now the Russians to trick us into epistemological despair, the first victims of that war on truth are the host societies. You know, the Internet Research Agency first honed its disinformation skills on the Russian Internet by putting in phony comments on news items. Put another way, this kind of disinformation warfare, it's a little bit like chemical gas munitions. It has a tendency to blow back. The final lesson here is to remember that Russians, like the Soviets before them, are not 10 feet tall. Vladimir Putin is not a master strategist. As his war on Ukraine proves, Russia has fielded a Potemkin army that is so corrupted and rotten it has bogged down and suffered major losses, including many officers and generals, against a smaller and poorer opponent. We should never lose sight of this. Yes, the Russian state today is wicked. But among the rogues gallery that comprise the ranks of its military and spy agencies, I wouldn't be surprised if there were more Matrokins biding their time and waiting for the right moment to expose maybe another archive of great crimes. And now, a word from our sponsor. From the grocery store to the gas station, working families are getting hammered by rising prices. But instead of focusing on inflation, Congress is pushing anti-innovation legislation that will impose more financial burdens on working people and seniors. Their misguided agenda could cost public pension plans $109 billion. Teachers, firefighters, and nurses would pay the heaviest price. 
Congress needs to focus on inflation and leave American workers alone. Well, right now, the re-education podcast is absolutely so fortunate to have a friend of mine, Peter Savodnik, the author of the 2013 book on Lee Harvey Oswald's time in the Soviet Union, called The Interloper, and the senior writer and editor of the Common Sense Substack with Barry Weiss, where he has not only published some great pieces under his own name, but he has really taken that publication and turned it into the kind of high-end op-ed page and sort of, you know, place to read really thoughtful stuff and arguments and, and reporting that isn't in the the mainstream media a lot of the time. So, Peter, thank you so much for coming on The Reeducation. Great to be here. So we are here today to talk about Soviet the history of Soviet espionage and disinformation. And so I want to just sort of get things going with a proposition I want to get your thoughts on it, which is that if the Cold War was determined entirely by the CIA and the KGB, it is my view <laughs> that we would all be speaking Russian and we'd have, you know, statues of Lenin and Marx in all of our major cities. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I think that espionage and, and intelligence come much, much more naturally to Russians and, and the certainly the Russian and the Soviet state permitted for a much more aggressive kind of intelligence gathering and surveillance. They were, I think, better at it in a lot of ways. The CIA and, and other Western intelligence agencies' role during the Cold War was to among other things, preempt the, the worst of Soviet intentions and to try to mitigate any kind of damage that was being done. But but really it was to hold them off, I think, and to try to, again, play defense with the hope that the expectation that the American idea, the Western democratic idea, would ultimately prevail. And I, and I think that's, well, I would, that's what I happened. Well, I would add to that that because America in the Cold War period, even though it had some state controls, a lot of state controls at times on the economy, it wasn't anything like the Soviet Union, but this allowed for the United States as well as the West in general to make a to, to make leaps in technology that were really not on offer for the Soviets, where the Soviets had to steal technology. You know, the United States, I'm thinking of, you know, the beginning of the Silicon Valley and, you know, computers. Mm -hmm. The United States became a hub for these innovations. And that then did have an impact in terms of espionage, because the technical capabilities of the United States versus the Soviet Union at the end of the Cold War was, the US was vastly superior. Yeah, that that's true. And, and I, I think that that's a good point. And, and look, I mean, we saw that in East Germany as well, right? The, the, the Stasi managed to recruit or corral, you know, something like, you know, half or two thirds of the population directly or indirectly into kind of working with them. And that wasn't enough to keep tabs on everybody. And so just that kind of manual intelligence gathering that, that more old fashioned or, or less technologically adept surveillance was ultimately inadequate. I think, yes, we, we enjoyed a lot of technological advantages 
and that's critical. But but really, you know, every CIA officer I've ever interviewed, I, I think, had a somewhat tempered or or I would say like very thoughtful kind of assessment of understanding of what they were up against. They were up against a regime that had endless resources when it came to intelligence, was willing to do anything, was not constrained by any kind of system of, of checks and balances. There was no concern about, you know, being held accountable. And, 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 and not just that, I think also there was an expectation on the part of the Soviet people that the KGB and and all of its various kind of subordinates and and clients and 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 sort of you know parallel organizations Warsaw Pact would would do things would 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 take this battle to a, to the nth degree in a way that I think Americans probably don't have the stomach for and 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 for good and, reason and I think I think that's right and I think the other thing is that you know when someone like Philip Agee who was a CIA officer in Latin America defects. There were certainly efforts yeah. by the CIA to catch up with him, but there were they would they could kind of only go so far. Whereas, and he died of natural causes eventually in Cuba. Whereas, if you can imagine it, the 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 Soviet version or the Russian version of Philip Agee would you know be irradiated or pricked with a an umbrella with a poison <laughs> tip or you know murdered in some way, and the fact that the that the Soviet intelligence services, for example, traveled all the way to Mexico City to murder Leon Trotsky. It just showed a kind of level of resolve to enforce this kind of bloody will of the state in a way that I don't think a Western democracy could, maybe they could, I think they could do that in, in wartime. I don't think it was possible over time to do it when we were kind of in this, in this Cold War, which wasn't in a shooting war. Yeah, I mean, I think we should be clear. I, 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 I'm sure that there are plenty of Americans at the very highest levels of government power who are capable yes. of all kinds of nefariousness. It's that the American system, the state, and American society doesn't allow for, won't allow for a degree of of kind of that that kind of mass intelligence well, gathering I think, and, I, I think and, it's, it's, and it's not it's just more intelligence. Than it outs. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, so there, you know, there, yeah, that's know right. That's, right. It, it, that's exactly right. Right. And then it, then there was, you know, then there were a series right. of disclosures in the 1970s culminating with the church committee and the Pike committee. And, right. you know, that was, that weakened in a sense, the CIA. And there was never a chance for anything like that with the KGB. Although we'll get to the fact that after, right after the collapse of Soviet Union, they kind of had a version of this kind of radical transparency, which is a story I love, but it's the, it's when, yeah, sorry, go yeah, ahead. But I think that's, yeah, go on. Well, no, I think, I think that's right. I think, I think, look, there, you're right. Like there, there, the CIA has done all kinds of things. There's been all kinds of, you know, the Pentagon sure. papers make clear that, you know, we, 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 we have, you know, waged all kinds of surreptitious campaigns. We, we know that, but, but it's that the, if you if this when if and when these things come out, there is blowback. There are problems, and and so perhaps you know we don't we have no idea what what is we don't know what we don't know to to quote a former uh, <laughs> defense secretary or a paraphrase I should say, but 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 we but you know I think that it's it's safe I think it's a safe bet to assume that 
you the the kind of the outrage or the the anger the consternation the frustrations or 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 whatever feelings that those kinds of public shamings or or reports lead to in the United States there's no parallel reaction in in Russia or the Soviet Union I think that in those in 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 in, in Russia there's an expectation that these things happen mm-hmm. and they're going to happen and and they're probably happening for good cause and you should keep your head down and and well it's um, hard to not, I mean, I, not bother about I, it's it. hard to know i mean the, like the great terror under joseph stalin was you know traumatic it was it was traumatic it was like for millions of of regular soviet citizens and there was certainly a sense i'm sure that in 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 places where a soviet could trust that they would not be informed on to the state that, you know, they probably had very different opinions about some of these things, I would imagine, or at least it wasn't as uniform as the Soviets would have liked us to believe. But when you run a fear-based society or terror-based society the way the Soviet Union was, you know, of course your intelligence service is going to be better because the consequences of not going along with it are so much greater. Whereas, you know, in, in America, you know, I mean, to this day, you know, Edward Snowden, I guess, has a life. You know, he lives in a Moscow apartment. He gets to attend conferences online. And I don't think that there is a, a CIA team out to try to kill him. Whereas I have no doubt, because we've seen it happen with Litvinenko, that if, if it was in the other on the other shoe, he would be dead. He'd be dead. I, I think also that it's not just that the Soviets or the Russians operate certainly the Soviets, sort of like a fear-based system. It's that right. expectations on a very fundamental even or even primal level are, are fundamentally different. So, you know, the United States represents, you know, this sort of culmination of this democratic spirit that can be traced all the way back to 5th century Athens. And so it's the the culmination of the, the flowering, if you will, of this sort of, you know, almost 2,500-year old project or, or, or evolution. And the organizing principle is the individual. In, in Russia, the organizing principle is the collective or the, the subordinates, this idea of like sort of like this spiritual collective or unit. And, and that's not to say there aren't, you know, all kinds of individual expressions and, and aspirations, but, but that's not, that's not the, 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 again, the, the organizing unit around which Russian society revolves. And so I think that in a way, the two are, are immiscible liquids. The United States and, and Russia, the and and they really are. They present to each other a kind of existential challenge. The Americans confront the Russians with this idea of, well, why why would you conceive of a world, a reality in which you are you, in which there is this subordinate? And the Russians, conversely, you know, present the Americans with this challenge of sort of like, well, what is this 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 toothless, bloodless? you know, individual-based society in which there is no culture, there's no heritage, there's nothing that like stretches that back that has any kind of like unifying power. And so they they both kind of, I, I think, face off with each other in this kind of almost Manichaean way. And that's that's been the case. This this predates the the Soviet Union and, and obviously it, it's it's the case today. And so I think you know, when it comes to the Soviet Union and intelligence gathering and spies, you know, I, I just think it's it's much easier when you're in a, a a society, a world in which the collective predominates, to to expect and and to and even to want for for you know 
people to subsume their personal inclinations, grievances, aspirations in in the name of of the group. So I subsume is not the right word, but to that is like to to you know deprioritize. Right. No, 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 that that is makes sense. I wanted to ask you because in your reporting you've talked to people who were who worked with and were close to James Jesus Angleton. And we should say that James Jesus Angleton is the founder of the counterintelligence bureau of the F, of the CIA. He is the he's probably one of the most important people in the history of the CIA. The CIA went through many directors, but until 19 from its founding in 45 after the kind of he was in the what was the predecessor to the CIA known as the uh, OSS until 1974 there was one counterintelligence chief it was James Jesus Angleton. And you know, if you want to understand the history of American intelligence, you have to look into this guy. So First of all, what what is what are your impressions of this guy? He I always found him a fascinating figure. He was he went to Yale. He he loved literature. He loved he was friends with T. S. Eliot. He was a very kind of cultured, refined man, but in some ways a very tragic figure. Yeah. So you know, I never I've never I never you know had the chance to interview him, obviously, and and I, I didn't. I don't know Angleton himself. I don't know a lot about him per se. I know a lot about the people around him and I can say that and I and I, I know a good bit about sort of his reputation at the at the company. And I think he's very much in keeping with that yes. sort of original old guard uh, of the the kind of the which which by the way was not that dissimilar in some respects to the old guard at the State Department. It was old, it was waspy, it was forcefully, vehemently sort of well, he was though, though he was all, he was, he was um, unabashedly Hispanic. Right. Correct. Right, right. But but very much in keeping with that that old tradition. And and I think they viewed themselves as as guardians of the American project, and 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 imagined that in their absence the whole thing would collapse. And I think there were there were people at at the CIA, and by the way, everyone I've ever met at the CIA who is older than fifty it doesn't it dispenses with the the definite article. It's not at the yeah. CIA; it's at CIA. But everyone at CIA of a certain age, I think, or I should say a number of people who are older or who are in his circle probably didn't view things quite that stridently, quite that, quite that way. I think there was, there was something that, 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 you know, he was a, an outlier in some respects, but I also think that he, what made him so important, well, no, what made, what, what was striking about Ingleton is that I think he 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 got he got he got there okay so so let me sorry let me back up there's you know he was stuck on this question of what are the soviets right. trying to do to us what what are they what are they doing to america and how are they how are they taking over our institutions how are they corrupting us and there is this kind of crazy making process that happens i think in the 50s and 60s where there's there are a lot of people at at sir angleton's level who begin to imagine this idea of the Soviet Union co-opting all of our the whole of America surreptitiously, and and I think he he very much is in that vein and in that camp. Certainly, there are a lot of people who did not see things that way. He, he was, I think, convinced that the 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 Soviets, you know, had 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 people at the very highest levels of American government. He believed that know, Willie Brandt Washington, was a Soviet agent. Were, he believed that he was a former Chancellor of Germany. Correct. He, he believed that. There were 
British prime ministers who were Soviet agents. He was a paranoid person. And in some ways, he came by that paranoia honestly. And this is the thing that you have to know about Angleton, which is that as a young mm -hmm. man, he learned the craft of espionage and intelligence from someone named Kim Philby, who is maybe the 20th century's most <laughs> notorious spy. He was part of what was known as the Cambridge Six, or is the Cambridge, the Cambridge Six, which were re recruited by the yeah. Soviets, I think in the 1920s and 1930s, and kind of went, you know, rose through the system and was the mentor to Angleton during World War II when they were both in Italy. And then when Kim Philby was the station chief for the MI6 in Washington, they, you know, they, they had their, their, their very boozy lunches like every week. They, sh they were thick as thieves. They were, they were, some would say, some have argued they were, that, he, that Angleton and Philby were best friends. And then the ultimate betrayal. And I think that changes Angleton where he doesn't trust anyone after that. And he is forever convinced that the CIA is infiltrated by Soviet spies. Because how is it possible that this person who played such an, such a, an influential role in his life and taught him the game, as it were, could have ended up being a Soviet agent? I mean, that in itself is a remarkable psychological operation for the soviets let alone yes the incredible intelligence that was stolen by kim philby who by the way here's a fascinating side note on this kim philby after everybody knows that he was a spy for the for the for the commies for a while in beirut was a was a contributing writer to the economist i don't know what to make of that i'm just saying i mean this you know <laughs> there you go anyway I think I think it's really important. Another thing to consider here when, when talking about the sort of Soviet versus American spy wars, it's it's really important to consider also the the oh yeah uh, warring ideologies. You know, Whitaker Chambers talks about this rather intelligently witness. in in his yeah. in his memoir. So, yes, in witness the deception or the betrayal, I should say that that you you were talking about with regard to Philby and 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 Ingleton is informed by sort of the the kind of radicals conviction that we we are waging a world historical mm. battle the the proletariat is up against titanic forces of that are that were centuries if not millennia in the making we are overturning the dialectic i mean all these very grand marxist you know historical abstractions which are deeply felt. It's it's not it's not just theory. It's not abstruse and and recondite and and kind of dry stuff. It's real and it's felt and it's and it's and it's it's in a very weird way very personal. The American, by contrast, or the Westerner, for the most part, by contrast, who is not under the sway of of this kind of ideological or radical persuasion. Is 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 like most people in democratic societies conflicted. Yes, there's a, a sense of a that the right the rightness of America, the rightness of 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 the West and democratic capitalism, but there's an awareness of I think as you encounter in all free societies of the complexity of life and of contradictory factors and nuance and and an, an appreciation of. Again, sort of that in the incongruity that one encounters in just sort of ordinary day-to-day -day life. And so that I think that, that has a way of tempering 
you know, sort of like the Western mind that makes us, but it also makes us much more susceptible, vulnerable to the radical. And I, and, and this is something which, which Chambers talks about a lot. It's something which, by the way, Tenen Pagley, who was a, a who worked at, at CIA Under um, and was a source in, in my book. Yes. And, and, and was, a, was, was critical in, in the Yuri Nosenko affair. It's something that, that Bagley was, was keenly aware of. And, and I think it's something which he felt this idea that a free people versus a radicalized people is not an equal, a level playing field in a way, but the, so you really are counting on the spirit of the power of the idea of, of democracy to prevail over, over Soviet authoritarianism. Yes and no, because I think you're <laughs> right about the, the power of, of Bolshevism and Marxism, especially in the late 19th and, you know, really the early 20th century, you could argue. And that in many ways is a response to the horrid conditions of these sort of new cities that are teeming with factory workers and the lives that the workers had and the fact that they had no rights. They, you know, the, the work was often really perilous and dangerous. You would get black lung if you worked at a mine. Children were working and not going to school. And, you know, that would drive, I think, one to embrace these radical ideas. And you're also right that I, it's, you know, international communism is an international concept. It's not content with saying we're going to try communism here and, and you guys will try capitalism and we'll still be friends. It's that's no, it's it's one or the other. It is that Manichaean struggle, whereas mm -hmm. it's certainly possible to sort of say, Although I think that there's a kind of universality as well to liberal democracy, there's you can live in a liberal democracy and you know kind of say, all right, well that part of the world is going to be that part of the world. Who cares? But at the same time, you know, I yeah, as the great dissidents of the Soviet Union told us, whether it was Solzhenitsyn or Sharansky, you have if you are running a totalitarian system like the Soviet Union, you need to expend enormous resources to keep everybody else in a state of kind of fear to never question that to mm -hmm. me is an almost it's an unnatural state for humanity is to you know to constantly be a double thinker where you're you're thinking the real thing and then you know then you you can what what is acceptable to say i think it's unnatural here it's unnatural in the united states and i think still i i, I hope I don't think it's as unnatural as as we would like to think it is in Russia, or for that matter, in in China or 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 other 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 parts of the world. So, so I guess yes, I, I agree with you. But I think that you know, sort of our our natural dispositions vary. I think you know, you know, the question of whether there's a there's a universal like a, a human uh, disposition. So, so that, that's, um, we're going to need more than debate. a podcast to sort that. One. Yeah. Okay, but okay, now I want to yeah, talk about yeah. your book, which which looks mm -hmm. at, not just Oswald, but it looks at Americans who defected to the Soviet Union. And right. <laughs> why don't you tell us, like, <laughs> I mean, the story of Oswald is fascinating. It's like the Soviets kind of didn't know what to do with this guy. And he was very enthusiastic. And he's sort yeah, of like, I mean, you know, it's like they all go there and then they get their, their hearts broken, I guess, right? Yeah, I mean... In a lot of respects, Oswald's story in the Soviet Union is is very, very typical. And I think Oswald is but you say Lee Harvey um, Oswald, to the Soviets, somebody who... John F. Kennedy. And I want to just get this out. Yes, you yes. do not believe the Soviets were behind the assassination <laughs> of Kennedy. 
I am strongly persuaded that the Soviets okay. had nothing to do with it, and that Lee Harvey Oswald, as the Warren Commission determined, was a, a lone actor. I realize that there's a, a huge swatch of America that that now thinks that I'm I'm you know controlled by you know well, whatever is invisible get powers I'm not. I, I, podcast, I, I, but I would first go back uh, to uh, the the <laughs> conundrum of Americans going to the okay. Soviet Union thinking they've found right. this utopia and then learning it's terrible. So the, the Soviets had a lot of experience in this, right? The fellow travelers, useful idiots, Westerners who sympathized with the, the Bolshevik cause had been coming to Moscow and, and Russia for a, a long time, you know, stretching all the way back to the 20s. I, I, I mean, among the most famous were oh, you yeah. know, like Bertrand Russell, any number of great writers. And and they and, and if they had a certain kind of success and name to begin with, they could come away and, and you know, write about it, you know, a little more. They 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 they, they kind of kind of wade in and out almost like tourists, you know, John Steinbeck style. But 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 the ones who went there, so so, so that was the twenties and and to a degree in the early thirties. By the by the time that the Stalinist terror took over, that had begun to ebb somewhat. And then of course during the war. These things, it was much harder to, to travel back and forth. By the time the war was over, I think that there was an awareness on the American left that the the Bolshevik promise was not what it had been made out to be. And there was a kind of quiet reassessment that took place. That's why the energy shifted first to Mao and eventually to to, to Cuba the idea being that, that the great hope for the revolution would, would be elsewhere. I don't think that there was ever sort of like an open recognition of this. It was it was embarrassing and it, and it undermined sort of their ideological sort of sense of, of self. But it was it was understood, I think, by the by the early fifties that the Soviet Union was was not what it had been made out to be back in the the early and mid twenties. Then along comes Oswald in fifty nine and he he has the same hopes and expectations for the Soviet Union and his defection to it that that so many westerners had in the past he thinks that he he's he's sort of taken with the ideas and and he has this very kind of almost kind of like semi-literate understanding of of marxist theory and and it all sounds very nice and really i think what what appeals to him is again like it's it's like if if you read the communist manifesto there's this it, Above all, setting aside the economic or political theory, there's the the, the conviction, the, the moral authority. It's the idea that this is right and this has to happen and there's a fury and a, and a, and a, and a sense of the ineluctability of, of our ideas coming to pass. And so that's very, very seductive to someone like an Oswald who, you know, at this stage of life was totally, he, he, he had lived a totally kind of rootless life. He had, he had a a, a crazy mother who was constantly moving him around. He had no sense of of community or family, and so so these ideas, this this promise of the sort of the, the great Soviet sort of you know sort of uh, you know sort of, sort of you know over overturning of like the you know of, of history and, and embracing of a, of a new era that was very very appealing to someone like an Oswald. And again, it's the idea of the subordinates of the of the Russian collective and 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 throwing oneself, plunging oneself into this group and acquiring this this membership. Which is why, you know, he arrives and he he comes to the Soviet Union via train. He 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 enters through Finland. He comes to Leningrad and then he goes on to to Moscow. And he immediately indicates to the KGB that he he wants to right. become he a Soviet citizen. You to U two is this right. very high flying spy plane that 
Soviet yes. air defense yes, which could was not a, yeah. hit. And right, yes. and this is the Gary and Powers he, and, incident, and, which is well, a, a huge thing in the Cold War, where he gets shot down and he's like a hostage, and and it's you know becomes this big kind of international story and everything. And so this is the context of where. Yes. Of well, actually, I guess Oswald would have arrived before the Gary Powers incident, but this is the the context of that's right. Like him right before. Know, it's like, hey, I can really help you guys. Well, and 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 this is a good example of Oswald having just enough information to make himself kind of initially right. curious to the KGB, and then after a very short period of time, the KGB realizing that actually he was useless to them. So in Oswald's case, he knew that the base he had been at as a Marine earlier in the fifties in Japan was the same base where a lot of the U-2 planes were taking, right. were, 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 were based at. And he thought that, that that information would be very, very compelling to the Soviets. And initially, for a few minutes, it was. And then they realized, wait a moment, he, when they looked into what he had done and, who, and what he had studied and what he was capable of, they realized that he didn't actually have any of what they wanted. What they wanted was to figure out how to build a missile that would go high enough to 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 take out the plane, the the the, the, the U-2s. They, that was it. So I want to I want to sort of bring it back to the idea yeah, yeah. of of sort of disinformation because, the, and it dovetails nicely because the assassination of John F. Kennedy is seized upon by the Soviets who who study American society so closely in such a way, and they're always looking for things to rile up the fringes, sow confusion and dissent. And it's interesting because, you know, first of all, there there's always excessive secrecy when you're talking about things like this. So there was excessive secrecy on the American side too. But the fact pattern, you, you it was a fair question to ask, and some people did ask this in the 60s, even though I, I'm, I, I defer to you that the Soviets didn't have anything to do with killing Kennedy. But instead, we have this... To this day, people think the CIA or the deep state killed Kennedy, in part due to this, you know, a U.S. attorney named Jim Garrison. You know, there's the movie JFK, and it's kind yeah, of an insane, insane thing. But the Soviets yeah. totally are stoking this, and they also stoke the idea that you know Martin Luther King, when he was alive, was you know a sellout working with the Johnson administration. And then, you know, when he's dead, they say this is the American U.S. government killed him because he was too radical. And they're playing this kind of game in American society. Now, I, I should say, just so everybody understands, the CIA also had information operations. But the Soviets were, like, obsessed mm -hmm. with this kind of stuff. They did, they really did put a lot of work into it, not just in America, but all over the world. And I wanted to kind of get your sense of what do we make of all that? Because I think two things can be true. One is that the Soviets and now the Russians spend a lot of time and resources trying to confuse us and get us to believe things that are not true and filling our, our information space with disinformation. That is true. But I don't know mm -hmm. if, if that... I don't... I, it's how do you judge how effective that is without at least kind of giving in or, or, or tacitly kind of admitting that you think that most Americans are, are, are dumb children, which I don't think. So it's like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like <laughs> you, we're, we're being manipulated. Yeah. And this was, and this obviously is very current today. There's a whole segment of the elite that is obsessed with this idea that foreign disinformation, Russian disinformation is brainwashing Americans. And yeah. that's why so many support Trump. I mean, that is a, that's a lot of people think that. 
Yeah. So I guess a, a few thoughts. I think that in general, as a, as a very general matter, Soviet attempts to manipulate American opinion were much less effective than Russian oh, attempts today okay. for a few reasons. I think that the Americans had a much stronger, clearer sense of self, of what America was at the time. I also think that the Soviets were were keen on 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 stoking all kinds of of mythologies or or promulgating all kinds of mythologies but they there are certain things they did not want to 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 there were certain places they didn't want to go so for example they did not want to be thought of as in any way responsible for JFK's assassination understanding full well that that would have triggered a war but i i think that as a Again, as a general matter, I think we were less, the American people were much less susceptible to manipulation during the Cold War for a number of reasons. I think that there was a clear sense of purpose and an and American identity. And and that had a way of, of stealing us, stealing the American public against well, I mean, some of these manipulations. That, doesn't the answer to that question depend on what period you're talking about? I think you're right if you're talking about 1940. 45 to maybe 1965 but you know mm -hmm. right around sergeant peppers things start to go in a very different direction <laughs> i mean i mean yes and yes and no i mean yes and no i think i think look there's always a fringe in america that that has embraced all kinds of of crazy whether we're talking about or, birchers on the right or or you know the counterculture on the left i think that what's happened more recently in america in the post Cold War era, and and more recently in in the kind of Trump post Trump era, which is still really the Trump era, is is that the the guardrails of American politics on the right, not the left, but the right, have you come think undone. Kind of come and undone. So also on the, I think a, come undone on the left too. I, I think the left is trying. I think the Democrats are trying desperately to kind of sustain a kind of kind of structure it looks increasingly kind of corporate and 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 nonsensical you only have to listen to the vice president talk for about I 10 mean, seconds Peter, to realize Peter, that they have no Peter, idea what they're talking about i know that there are <laughs> academics who spend a lot of time on on gender ideology uh -huh. and trying to convince us that there's 67 yeah. genders okay yeah there you are. know if we had good guardrails on the left <laughs> it would not be that nobody yes. would be talking yeah. about it because it's just nonsense no, I, you're, you're I mean, right. I can go I mean, through I guess, another. Um, there are a bunch of examples um, of stuff on the left bit. that people believe that's just. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, I'm not trying. It's it's not even like a. Yeah, no, no, there's you're, different you're, kinds of craziness, right? No, I think I think the difference is that on the you're you're yes, you're right. We're and this is I think where the you're seeing like these sort of Democrats and the left as a as a more generally speaking kind of reaching a breaking point because the left is asking us increasingly to believe things that are unbelievable. Whether we're talking about um, like the inflation reduction or, act. Um, it's just like you could just go through the list. In, Inflation so Reduction many... Act, or or sort of right. The, the, the why, like the lab leak theory, is 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 oh, and then uh, racist it's not and so racist. on and so and forth. We've been but, saying but the, it the whole time, right? Until right, but but yes. Yeah, so so you're right. But I guess what I meant is that the come to Jesus moment that the Republicans had back in 2016, which is a response to you know decades of of America kind of grinding itself down, of sort of this this kind of neoliberal moment. 
you know, kind of hollowing out the the American interior, the opioid crisis, sort of the you know, sort of the takeover of American industry or the the exportation exporting of American industry. I think you know like what happened in 2016 was on the right has not happened yet on the left because the you know the the you know, Bernie did not win. And and so the, the, the Democrats haven't had, Democrats haven't had that big kind of like you know well, vomitous yeah, moment. Yeah, but Biden yet, where, won, and we all know, thought Biden was the you know the moderate uh-huh. traditional Democrat. And look at what he's trying to do. But I think it's uh, look at what but he's trying to do compared I I, to okay, what I agree. you know. Maybe, it, but uh, we're. I mean, listen, I'm. I was, you know, a year and a half ago, I would have said, yeah, you know, Biden is a different wing of the party, he's a different guy. I'm sorry, you know, mm-hmm. an executive order that requires anti-racism to be a component of every government agency, the Department yeah. of Health and Human Services, we're a little bit off topic here, like, you know, basically saying that we should, that they endorse gender-affirming care. You can go through the list of a whole bunch of things that are very on the I, left I, look, of the party. He, yeah, yeah. No, I, and I, and I, look, I, I, I agree. My, my, my point is simply that I think that the, the the reason that Russian manipulation of opinion on on the right especially has been so there there are two reasons why I think it has been so effective in the past several past you know stretching back five six seven years. You think it has been effective? Uh, the the first I do on the right for sure, and 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 we see that now in the war in the, okay. with regard but to I the mean, war in I, Ukraine. You don't, but still, the majority um, of Republicans, the, the, so, so he, the vast majority of Republicans, support the Ukrainians. And there are figures like J.D. Vance who, who yes are, and no. Like, there's a populist yeah. strain, but is that is that a result of Russian disinformation, mm-hmm. or is that a, a very old strain in American politics of a kind of nativism and isolationism? Mm-hmm. And I am inclined to think it's that, as opposed to, mm-hmm. you know, whatever kind of you know clever fake Twitter troll thing they were doing, right? No, I don't think it's that. I think it's that the Russians. So with Putin. What the Russians have done very, very effectively is is rebranded themselves, if you will, as the last great redoubt of white Christian civilization, and 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 there is, I think, on some very kind of emotional or again primal level on the right in America, this sense of of you know a, mm-hmm. a, a comradeship of 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 brotherhood, and I think it's it's it, that's why you're you're finding increasingly on the right, it's difficult to get. Republicans, leading Republicans to come out unequivocally, strongly against what the Russians are doing. Yes, they're, sure, there are plenty of them doing it. But when it comes down to, okay, but what kind of like military aid packages are we talking about here? Why aren't we doing everything we can to, to, to aid the Ukrainians? The, the, the disinformation campaign surrounding Zelensky, I think that which many of which have been promulgated by by Republicans. Who, who are the, I mean, I, I think, think that, I'm, I'm conceding you know, that, that there is are all... Republicans. There are a few Republicans, or there, and there certainly, if you broaden it out, right? If you go to the populist mm-hmm. right, if you you know, the, the, you know, there's there, there's an opinion that's out there, but I I I'm not seeing much evidence that that's taking over the entire right, and I can give you plenty of counterexamples of mainstream Republicans who have been like yes. Mitch McConnell wanted, you know, a, a very lavish aid package to Ukraine. And also there are, there are fair yes. arguments. You can be very pro Ukraine and say, wait a second, this is an awful lot of money we're spending awfully quickly. Are we going to be able to account for it? Yeah. I think the problem is that, yes, I, I agree with all that. The problem is that at, at root, the MAGA base is, 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 is I, I think psychologically, 
even culturally aligned with what they view as sort of like the, the new Russia. And, and that's the heart of today's Republican Party. So Mitch McConnell may, may say, you know, we need to do everything in our power to, to aid and abet the Ukrainian cause. But the question is, where are Republican voters all across the country? And I, and I, I think that, you know, the, 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 the power of the, I, you know, culture wars and, and of Russia manipulation of that is, is felt here, right? There are, I think most Republican voters, if, if Bush came to shove, would say, well, I'm more worried about, you know, gender fluid kindergarten teachers than I am about Putin okay, invading on, a NATO member state. I, I, I think, I, yeah. I, I think you might be right about that, but I don't think that's, that's evidence of the mm -hmm. efficacy of Russian, you know, disinformation campaigns. I think that's just evidence of the fact that there are a lot of Republicans who, it's almost like, how do I, I would put it like this. When I was, when I, I visited Iran once and I was there with students who were, you know, sympathetic to my view about the Iranian regime, but nonetheless, I, I, I got a chance to talk to just sort of, you know, a lot of students at Tehran University, I was introduced and so forth. And I said, you know, do you agree with the regime? How do you feel about is, you know, Israel, the Zionist entity? And I was, all of them were like, I don't care, but I kind of like it because the, I hate the people the regime that hates them. So I'm going to be whatever therefore I'm against. And I kind of think it's a little bit of that going on with the Republicans, which is that you've had six years of, you know, Russia, 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 and it not, and, and some fairly dirty business from the FBI in that regard in the Clinton campaign. And, you know, they just like the, the worst people in cable news and politics are obsessed with Russia. So therefore, I'm on the other side of it. I don't know. Is that a result of Russian disinformation or you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Look, I, I don't know. No, no, that's a good question. And I don't, I don't know. I, I think that, you know, the Russians don't mm. have to do a lot these days to yeah. get Americans all worked up. I think that, again, on the the, the manipulation has been in the rebranding. It's been Putin presenting himself as this manly man. And and, and you could yeah, see traces not, that, of this, or I should say origins of this. That's just branding. I'm saying, well, but I'm yeah, saying, it is. I'm saying like, when well, I think of disinformation, I think of the CIA invented AIDS. And in order to 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 kill okay, right. gay yeah, you're people right. and black right. people. And that was right. a real right. operation. Right. Right. And it right. got all the way to Dan Rather. By the way, Dan Rather's legacy is it just to right. decide? Really, the worst of the baby boomer yes. anchors. I mean, what a absolute yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. He's, and and then clown. He's like the sort of like the Twitter oh, denouement of his like career. But anyway, that is, was is the saddest that was part of Dan it all. Rather yeah. calling um, for <laughs> a Russian information operation in 1987. Yeah. You'll hear about it in the mono. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So here's the thing. I I. I yes, there's a difference between creating a a story out of whole cloth and and right. you know kind of repositioning yourself or or remarketing yourself. However, I think that it, it, it amounts to the same same kind of manipulation. In many ways, what the Russians have done is, or or what Putin has done with the sort of rebranding of Russia, is much more effective because it taps into all of the fears, anxieties on the right. So 
Putin has portrayed himself right. as the manly man who, you know, shirtless goes to Siberia and hunts tigers and, and, you know, is, is unabashed about, you know, like money and power and women. And, and he taps into all of the kind of the, the worst kind of like, you know, kind of like toxic masculine, you know, girls gone wild kind of expectations right. of like. And by the way, you should, you should talk a little bride. bit about like, you did this, this piece for what... Vanity Fair about this is before, by the way, the country went Russia crazy, where of all these like kind of like weirdo mm -hmm. types, like ex-soldiers who would go to Russia, right? Oh, I'm sorry. For well, GQ. Like, my for bad. GQ, you mean on the Russian brides? Great. That was, which is a great. Yeah, yeah. Read so, everything no, that, Peter that's exactly writes, right. by the way. He's really one of our great writers right now. So thank you for that. I, what I would say actually is that those guys, the people I interviewed, I don't, I don't, mm -hmm. I've not stayed in touch with them. This, the piece came out in, I think it was 2008. These are the guys who, who were looking for brides, you know, Russian brides. And, and they were part of like this, you know, sort of movement as it were, or, 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 you know, you know, group of Americans, a large group of American men who, who went to Russia in the nineties and the aughts and looking for, for love. But what was interesting about them is that they had been kind of forced out of the, the, the 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 wife seeking market in Russia because Russia by 2007 2008 was was doing much better the the price of oil I think in July 2008 right. got up to like 148 a barrel so you know like you you, you couldn't expect to land at like Sheremetyevo in, in Moscow anymore and just sort of like start scooping up supermodels whereas I think like back in like 94 95 that was the expectation like these people are so desperate any chump from Little Rock can like swoop in. And, and, you know, and come home with, with, you know, you know, a gorgeous, like six foot tall, like, you know, woman from, you know, who, who, who's just like desperate to leave, to leave the country. And that was the kind of the very primitive and, and not entirely unrealistic expectation, you know, stretching into the odds. And what happened is that, you know, things got better in Russia. So, so the, the, the bride seeking industry shifted, interestingly, to, to Ukraine. And I caught up with these guys. They were part of this group called First Dream, based out of Dallas. And they they were all in Kiev looking for love. And and I think what's interesting about them in retrospect, I didn't I couldn't have seen it at the time in 2007, 2008, was that they anticipated a lot of the MAGA base. And and I, I think that that's like a really to me, that's like a really fascinating kind of connection that that again at the time would have been impossible to see they they admired putin they admired the russians they thought right this is how men are supposed to be they admired they, they and they and, and of course these were caricatures they admired right. the caricature of like the russian or ukrainian woman and by the way they didn't make any distinction between russians and ukrainians because they were all just in their minds just yeah. like hot slavic women to be much really like crude genghis khan and, did not and, make much of a distinction either anyway <laughs> sorry <laughs> <laughs> but they that was that was the sort of like silly you know attitude with which they they showed up in these countries but they they and and and, and of course the you know when they got to ukraine the the yes like they encountered a lot of there were a lot of like women who were willing to meet with them because right. ukraine was not as developed as as russia but but even then you could you know like there was a lot of sort of like among the women whom I interviewed there was a lot of sort of wondering like wow well, like I don't know if this right. is worth it these guys are sort of like a joke but you know it's a free meal and and why not and and then and then the way that the trip to Kiev was portrayed was well we'll spend like a, a few nights here and then we'll move on to the villages where things are really bleak and and that's where like that's where like you know the it's real a really it's a resides. really good piece. And, uh, and so and basically, I, I recommend it, and it's it's just thank you. Peter's got a great way of sort of bringing out these characters, and it's 
you know, it's... Uh, but I would say yeah. that, like, there's this connection between, and I don't mean to sound too far-fetched, between, like, Oswald, yeah. the Russian Bride Seekers, and, and like, the MAGA base today. And it's, it's always, like, these disaffected men who, who feel alienated from America, and they feel they're angry. They are full of rage. And and so they 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 love I Putin I, I, because yeah, they okay. see well, Putin. Thought, I, um, I, we're so, gonna we, we got to wrap it up, but I, I think I would push yeah. back on this last point. Yeah, I know. In fact, I know I would. Yeah. Okay. Well, no, no. I, I love to hear. Well, they, they 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 like Putin because they, they they admire him. They think that he's standing up to you know the the Marxists. This is this is ironic. And then they and they and they uh, they love Trump and they see they see they see Trump and and sort of like all the would be Trumps as. As as finally kind of catching up to where the Russians have been okay, now for, so for two decades. So my read on it is slightly different. Yeah, I think that Oswald and other defectors who went to the Soviet Union, even though Oswald was was you know maybe twenty years too late for this, right? But there was the kind of romanticizing this other system that was the main adversary for the United States in the Cold War. And there's always going to be some people who are going to, you know kind of get themselves wrapped up for whatever reason and think that that's, that's better. And then they're, of course, disappointed. But I think that the MAGA types, at least that I have encountered, they're almost, they embrace Trump out of a kind of revulsion, not so much for America. They, 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 they say they want to make America great again in the sense that they think that the people running America are, you know, a bunch of, you know, hypocrites and liars and completely self-serving and that the system that used to have a lot of wide purchase in this country about what you needed to do in order to get ahead is now rigged against them for any number of reasons. And that that's mm -hmm. why when yeah. Trump and Trump-like figures say outrageous things, they, they, they it, it bonds them closer to this base because they want somebody to just, you know, topple the whole thing, you know, to, 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 to topple the whole Jenga tower. Mm -hmm. And that, because they think it, they think that that's, mm -hmm. that's the thing that's destroying the country that they love, as opposed to I've given up on these ideas. I mean, I think if you ask, you know, a Trump voter, what do you like? And they, they would give you a list of things about America that are very, that are indeed part of the American tradition and are not alien to it, as opposed to, you know, a Bertrand Russell or Lee Harvey Oswald or somebody who went to the Soviet Union because they really did think they sort of were they they bought into the to the utopian dream. Yeah, I mean, I, I maybe uh, certainly in the case of Bertrand Russell, he he probably had a a a pretty clear sense of like sure. Marxist theory. He certainly didn't have any understanding of like you know the sort of the Bolshevik reality in the 1920s until he got there, and even then, I think he he didn't really grasp it after he left he's blinded by his own ideological you yeah. know sort of sort of clouds myopias. but i think that in the case of oswald or the case of most of these people who go there they, they have very very vague ideas of of what it is that they're chasing after and i think mostly what appeals to them is this idea that this is very very important it's right. the most important thing in the world and it's something you can belong to and we are giving you access to it now and the only thing you have to do to gain access to it is to surrender your soul. So you have to say that you believe, you know, wholly in this and commit to it and you never go back. And and by the way, life is going to be difficult and and but but you you will have a sense of place and belonging right. in the universe. And it they turns out that that's, trade, that's, trade comfort that's too much. Yeah. Oh, and that's 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 fascinating. Um, anyway, so we well, I will have yeah. you back. 
because <laughs> Peter is a great this is intellectual fun. journalist who knows a lot about many things, and I and then we we have good conversations. This was a great conversation, so thank you so much. And everybody, thank you. Five stars if you're on Apple, and nice reviews, only nice. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.